Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Those are the first eight verses of Psalm 16, which along with Psalm 17 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, December the 2nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the prophecy of Amos. We finished with the uh, epistles of Peter, and now we're going to spend a couple of days looking at the epistle written by Jude. And it's a very short book, so we're only going to be there two days. It's one chapter. Uh, and then in finally, in the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, it's chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. So, beginning with Amos, remember what Amos has done yesterday. What he had said was, is that I gave you multiple warnings. I give you sort of many judgments, M-I-N-I, some signs that you should have seen that would have called you to repentance. And yet you failed to return to me in spite of the difficulties that I brought upon you. You failed to see and read and interpret the signs that I've given you as a call to repentance, and that's exactly what Jesus was, his whole mission of John the Baptist was to call people to repentance. And the reality is that, that many of the people repented and began to look for the coming of the kingdom that John had promised, but the leaders of the people weren't longing for that at all. They didn't receive John's message, and then therefore they were not looking for the coming of Messiah at least not the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. And so there's a failure to see that, and and we see that same failure in the Revelation. Whenever God allows a portion of things to be destroyed, he's trying to get people's attention to get them to repent. And so we can look around us, should look around us, and begin to see that, that we live in a fallen, busted, and broken world, and that we need to be aware of that, more aware all the time of that, and begin to pray for the coming of God's kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of the world, and we not only need to pray for it, we need to work for the establishment of God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel in every single way that we need to proclaim it, not just in the churches, but we need to proclaim the gospel of truth, the gospel of justice, the gospel of mercy, and we need to proclaim that to the world that right now has lost its mind. It has absolutely lost its mind, the things that that we're seeing today in the the confusion of people today comes from a rejection of God because, as um, Chesterton said, you know, a hundred and something years ago now, um, that that just stopping believing in God does not mean you don't believe in something. It means you believe in anything. And so in the that's the world that we live in. We see people who are confused about what they are. We see all these bizarre manifestations of what we used to know without any question were mental illnesses. And now we just are normalizing these things and treating them as though that there's no problem at all. So in Amos here, what we hear is, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel 
forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have, burnt, have a hundred left. So the opposite of genocide, because genocide is defined as 10% killed. And, and here he's talking about 90%. And that which went out a hundred shall have 10 left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. These are places that have been set up as worship places in the northern kingdom after the division of the kingdom after Solomon's death. He says, For thus says the Lord, <coughs> Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Jacob, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So anybody who, who, who would say we have a problem here is ignored and hated, in fact. And, and I've certainly had conversations like this of a guy who, who has bought so much into this, this fake, uh, cheap, cheap grace movement that, that will say to me, John, don't talk about sin. You're the righteousness of God. Yeah, no, I'm not. I am, as I stand positionally in Jesus' righteousness, but unless I talk about sin, I don't have any right to his righteousness. Unless I confess my sins, then I'm anything but the righteousness of God. In fact, I'm the opposite of the righteousness of God because I don't even confess his righteousness. Because his righteousness, confessing his righteousness necessarily means that I confess my sin, that I see that sin in light of his holiness and perfection. Uh. <laughs> Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you'll not live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord the God of hosts will be with you, as you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call to the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I shall pass through your midst, says the Lord." So Amos is attempting to call the people back to the Lord. He said, look, you know, not only did he, uh, he, did he do these signs that should have pointed you to repentance, he sent me to proclaim judgment, but also to point out to you morons that those are signs, and you need to interpret those signs in light of my prophecy. I'm coming here to tell you that you missed it. But you have another opportunity to repent. Will you do it? Or are you just going to ignore the signs? And it's what 
the Pharisees and the leaders of the people did in the time of Jesus. They ignored the signs he was doing and the, the reality to which they pointed and instead denied him completely, hardened their hearts. And that's exactly what Amos is saying, is that you've become so corrupted in your hearts by your wealth and your prosperity that you, you're not even, it's not even possible to convict you of sin any longer. You're not, even, you're not even giving him thought. You're continuing to pursue what you do, and even when he strikes against that, you're ignoring it. And Jesus told that parable yesterday of the owner of the vineyard who, uh, with, the, with the wicked tenants, and now we get another one today that's equally pointed. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they wouldn't come. So he, he gave a wedding feast. He had already sent out the invitation and, and said, save the date, essentially. And so now that the feast is pre- prepared, they knew that it was going to be this day, and they'd already responded saying, yes, they would come. But now that the feast is ready, they say, no, they won't come at all. And then he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention to the king, the king. And went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Just invite anybody you run into to come to the wedding feast of a king. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, which was the intention is to have a full wedding hall. <clears throat> but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. So the, the tradition was that if you came to the wedding, you were provided with a garment specifically to wear at the wedding. And, and that was sort of your entry in was you put on the garment and you went in. That's the way it worked. You, you had a responsibility to do that. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. In other words, he made no reply to him at all. He just sat there and looked at him. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That whole parable right there of the wedding garment points to one very simple thing, two very simple things actually. One is the, the parable itself is saying that you've rejected the wedding invitation. Because you've rejected the the king and you've rejected his son, you've treated him with contempt. And so you choose not to come to the wedding feast, and and they're going to prove that here in a few days. All he's calling for is repentance and say, keep the commitment you made. And the commitment is to show up and to to recognize and celebrate the the wedding feast of the, the son of the king. And they failed to do it. They refused to do it because they didn't respect or even care for the king. And now, though, what he said is, is that, that he, those who are compelled to come still must come in the right way. And, and that's we've got to put on Christ in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to, to do the one thing required of us, and that is to put on his righteousness. That's the wedding garment that we have that waits for us to come into the feast is to accept that other piece of hospitality and grace in order to to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Jude is one of the strangest books in the into well in the entire Bible. Actually, it, the, the belief is that it's an apost- it's of apostolic origin because he says that he is the brother of James, and so we, he is it, the the epistle is authenticated in that way. But the reason I say that it's strange is because it brings in a lot of extra biblical material. It, it points to and from the book of Enoch. And it's so there's some references in here that may not be familiar to you. So it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Starts like a regular, in, in, in a regular epistle. When I say regular, I mean it sounds like the other epistles. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, I I wanted to to encourage you and build you up in the faith and raise up more here, but I'm not actually able to do that. Right now, the problem is the gospel is under attack. The truth of the gospel is under attack, and I need you to contend for the faith. I need you to stand firm in what you know, what has been delivered to you, and you need to stand firm not just for your sake, but also to contend for the truth of the gospel in order that the false gospel that's out there not be continually proclaimed. He said, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were denigrated for this, condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our master, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he's talking about here are those people we talked a little bit about yesterday who took Paul's message where Paul says you're not under law. They took that to mean I'm under way more freedom than you could ever even begin to imagine. No, I'm under grace. It doesn't mean that my life doesn't matter. It doesn't mean the law no longer has any force. It doesn't have any jurisdictional force. It can't—I'm not no longer judged under the law, but it doesn't mean that I'm free to live my life in a way that goes against God's law. I don't have that much freedom. My freedom is bounded. Just as even in the garden, Adam and Eve's freedom was bounded. They had one boundary, but they transgressed that. Well— we have boundaries as well. Those things matter. And what, what was being taught was that the, that the law had no force and it, had, it didn't matter anymore. Jesus had overcome the law. What he overcame was the, the juridical power of the law, the power of the law to judge me. I'm not judged according to the law. I'm judged according to faith because Jesus has already completely fulfilled the law in perfect righteousness. And so there were people, though, who took that to mean we have uh, sort of uh, freedom to live licentious, sensual lives. And then he goes on to say, I want to remind you, <clears throat> although you once fully knew it, and, and, which, which implies that now you, you seem not to know this, what you knew before, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. And it's an interesting l- way of saying that, and, and, to say that Jesus is the one who delivered them, and Jesus was the one who destroyed those who didn't believe, those in the wilderness who didn't believe, that, that it was Jesus who did that. And, and that's certainly not a way that we normally think about that, but then we think about the Trinity, then we do see that Jesus is part of that. And the angels, who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That that comes from the book of Enoch. 
is where that, that comes directly from the book of Enoch. It's nowhere in Scripture. It is, however, in the book of Enoch, but, it's, but he's, the writer here is laying hands on this and saying at least this portion of the book of Enoch is something we believe that this has happened. That, that This goes back, I've mentioned this before, to Genesis 6. To the, to the ones who came, the, the angels who came down from heaven because they found the, son, the daughters of men beautiful, and they came down and they mated with them, and they produced children, which are then called the Nephilim, the great one of old. And so they did more than that. They, they didn't just leave their spheres of heavenly authority because the beauty of the uh, daughters of men, what we're told in Enoch is they imparted knowledge to those women and to the children, their offspring, that that was not properly given to human beings, not sinful humanity at least. And so these they, they shared angelic knowledge and wisdom. So they, they took what they knew and they brought that knowledge to earth. And they're not supposed to have done that. And so that's part of their judgment. But then it goes on to say, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And that's exactly what Amos had said, I'll break out like fire among you. He said, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams... You notice they're Gnostics. They, they, they say they have special revelation that the rest of you don't have, and therefore they can be their teachers. Well, special revelation is one thing, but it's got to comply with Scripture. It can't go against Scripture. This is not uh, sort of a Hegelian dialectic here where we're looking at we have a, a thesis and an antithesis and then come up with a synthesis. It's not the same thing at all. It, this is, no, D- does your dream, your vision— does it fit with Scripture or not? Peter had a dream, and that dream had to do with, with the dietary laws. What these people are saying is, is that no, we, we have dreams and visions that say every law now no longer matters. And, and he's specifically talking here about sex. I mean, it's as clear as day that that's what he says because he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's not talking about a problem of hospitality in Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about sexual immorality and unnatural desire. So we know that the problem here that Jude is addressing has everything in the world to do with sex. And said, so these people relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He left judgment to God. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And that's the problem in the garden and the temptation, is is that the serpent poses a temptation to Eve that says, if it looks good and if it tastes good and if it produces a good result, then act at the level of instinct. When That's okay for a serpent, but it's not okay for those who are creating the image of God. We're expected to live at a different level, and that's what he's saying here. They blaspheme what they don't understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And the problem is is that our instincts are frequently wrong because they're fallen. So he goes on to say, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So we've got three different parts of Israelite history that are brought in here. 
They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I mean, this is, he's pronouncing judgment on these people who act according to their instincts rather than acting according to the word of God. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. So it's, that sounds very much like the only intentions of man's heart was only evil all the time. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, him being Jesus. And so these ungodly sinners have spoken against Jesus. They have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And he says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I mean, I'm not sure that, he, that Jude could have denounced these people anymore. And they need to be denounced. Anybody who would, who would redefine sin and tell people that what has always been known as sin is not sinful because you just don't understand, those people need to be shunned, and they need to be pushed out of the church and out of any leadership position they have because they are false teachers and false prophets. And we need to be constantly aware of how vulnerable we are to hearing arguments that tickle our ears as opposed to falling back and said, yes, God has said.